Well, if you have a copy of God's Word, I want to encourage you to turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 34 this morning. 2 Chronicles 34. We're in a series on revival, looking at some of the revivals that have taken place throughout Scripture because I believe that revival is really our only hope as a nation. I don't think our hope is found in politicians. I think our hope is found in the power of God coming down upon the people of God that produces a revival that then touches the people of the world. When that happens, then our nation can be blessed by God. Now, and I know some of you are probably saying, well, I don't really think God does that anymore. The things that God did in the Bible, the revivals that God brought about in the revival, God no longer does those kind of things And I would say to you that God does do those kind of things. And throughout our history as a nation and throughout our history as a world, we have seen God bring about revivals time after time after time. In America, we have had at least three great awakenings, maybe more than that. Sometimes God has used college professors. At other times, God has used lay people. One time he used college students who were stuck in a haystack during a lightning storm. And God used those college students to bring about a revival that literally opened up the modern missionary movement. Sometimes God used great powerful preaching. There were other times that God used anointed praying to bring about revival. But what I want you to know is that God has done it before and God can do it again. I want you to listen to what David Jeremiah said. David Jeremiah is a a strong preacher, a great author, and this is what he said about revival. He said, it seems hard to believe anything like that could ever happen when you look at our world today. But let me just say this to you. It seemed as impossible to the people who lived at that time that such a thing could happen. And my thought is, Lord, if you did it once, do it again. If you did it two or three times, let us be the next one. Because if we don't have something like that happen in our culture today, our ability to try to fix what's messed up in this nation is not going to get it done. We need an intervention. An intervention from Almighty God Like he's intervened in times in the past. And I believe God can do that. And I believe that God will do that if, if we do what we need to do. If we're willing to do our part. And so let's go ahead and get into our scripture for this morning. I want to give you a little bit of background if I can. The nation of Judah was probably at one of the worst points in its history history. They were filled with sin and rebellion against God. Eighty years earlier, God had already brought judgment on the northern kingdom, Samaria, Israel. And God had promised that he was going to bring judgment on Judah. The people were falling further and further from God, turning their back on God. Manasseh had been a king during this time. He ruled for 55 years. Manasseh was most likely the most wicked king to ever rule on the throne of Judah. 
He went into the temple of God and put idols to pagan gods in the temple of God. He built altars to pagan gods in the temple of God. And Manasseh even sacrificed his own son to pagan gods. Fortunately, God humbled Manasseh before it was too late. God got a hold of Manasseh's heart and Manasseh turned to God. But it was too little too late because the people of Judah didn't follow Manasseh's pattern. They didn't turn back to God. And Manasseh failed where it counted most. Manasseh failed in his own family. When Manasseh died, his son Amon became king. And Amon was as wicked as Manasseh ever was. He was so wicked that some of his own advisors assassinated him to get him off the throne. That's how wicked he was. And that's where I want us to take up our scripture this morning. 2 Chronicles chapter 33 beginning in verse 25. Listen to what it says. But the people of the land killed all those who had conspired against Amon. And they made his son Josiah the next king. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. Now, let your head grapple with that. He was eight years old. When most of our kids are in elementary school playing baseball and basketball and football, Josiah was sitting on the throne of God's people. It says he did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight and followed the example of his ancestor David. He did not turn away from doing what was right. During the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, he was 16 years old at this time. During the eighth year of his reign, Josiah began to seek the God of his ancestor, David. Now, at 16 years of age, Josiah had an encounter with God. God revealed himself to Josiah. God changed Josiah's life. Josiah began to seek the God of his ancestor, David. Then in the twelfth year, he began to purify Judah and Jerusalem, destroying all the pagan shrines, the Asherah poles, the carved idols, and the cast images. So at 16, Josiah has an encounter with the real God. At 20 years of age, he's still a young man. He begins to get rid of all of the idols, all of the altars to pagan gods throughout Judah. Now, understand this about um, Josiah. Josiah had no godly role model to look up to in his family. His nation was spinning out of control, headed toward God's judgment. He didn't know who he could trust. I mean, his father's most trusted advisors assassinated him. And so here was Josiah. He had all of this going against him, and yet God used Josiah to bring about a great revival in the nation of Judah. And what I want you to know is this shows us that God can use anyone to lead out in revival. God can use you. God can use me. God can use anybody if we are willing to be usable. So don't let your background hold you back. Josiah didn't. He had a pagan grandfather, he had a pagan father, but he wasn't the product of his family tree. 
Some of us want to blame our family tree on the way we're living today. Stop it. That's a cop-out. Some of us blame our economic situation for where we are today. Stop it. That's a cop-out. Some of us blame our past mistakes for where we are today. Stop it. That's a cop-out. You see, God can redeem you. God can redeem your situation. God can redeem your circumstances. Don't let your background hold you back. Why is it? Why is it that you're not being used powerfully by God today? Quit making excuses. Josiah didn't make excuses. His background didn't hold him back. His age didn't hold him back. Josiah was young. He was eight years old when he became king. He was 16 years old when he had an encounter with God. Many young people today say, I'm too young to be used by God. Maybe when I get a little bit older, then I'll let God use me. Stop it. God can use you to accomplish great things in the world for the kingdom. Throughout Scripture, we see God using young people to change the world. As we look at human history, we see over and over again God using young people to change human history. Stop living like you're too young to make a difference. You can make a difference. Maybe, maybe it's some of you that haven't even graduated from high school yet, that God is going to use as a catalyst to bring revival to our church that could bring revival to our nation. Maybe God could do that if you would stop making excuses. Some of us make excuses by saying we're too old, past my prime. I don't have the energy I used to have. That's just as much an excuse as a young person saying I'm too young to serve the Lord. You're not too young. You're not too old. You're just right to make a difference for the kingdom of God if you're just willing to surrender it all to him. Now, notice several things about Josiah, this progression. First of all, it says he sought the Lord. He had this personal encounter with God at 16 years of age, and that changed everything. When we read in, in 2 Chronicles 34 that he, he sought the Lord all of his life or he sought to turn or he did not turn from the Lord all of his life, what that is saying is when he came to know the Lord, he stayed with the Lord forever. At 16 years of age, his life was changed. Let me ask you a question this morning. Has your life been changed? Look me in the eye. Has your life been changed by the power of God. Has it been changed? Notice how his life was changed. He sought the Lord. The Bible says, seek the Lord while he may be found. The Bible says you will find him when you seek for him, when you search for him with all your heart. Listen, if you want to know God, God wants you to know him. And God will reveal himself to you. But you have to, like Josiah, seek God with all your heart. At 16, he had this life-changing encounter with God that totally changed the trajectory of his life. Four years later, at 20 years of age, he made the decision that he was going to clean up Judah. He was going to remove all the pagan idols, the pagan altars, the pagan poles from the land. And at 20 years of age, he did that. Now, let's stop for just a second. 
Josiah sought the Lord. In week one, when we began to look at how can we become catalysts that God uses to bring revival, we saw that the first step is we've got to humbly seek the Lord by repenting. We looked at the book of Judges, and we discovered how time after time, when the people turned from God, God brought his judgment upon them. But when they humbled themselves and sought God, God brought a deliverer. God brought revival, and he brought peace to the land. Revival. God will do that when we seek him. But we have to seek him. That's the first step. You're not going to fall into revival by mistake. You're not going to fall into revival by chance. You're going to experience revival when you're seeking for God with all of your heart. Josiah sought the Lord. But then notice, he got rid of all the idols. That's what we talked about last week. We looked at one of those revivals that took place early on in Judah's history. And how they were willing to get rid of all of the idols and all of the altars in the land. And, and we, we said last week that our altars and our idols are different than their idols. The idols that we have today are, are like uh, idols of family and, and idols of pleasure and, and idols of religion and idols of fame and fortune and idols of financial success. We have lots of idols they just look different than the idols that they worshiped back in that day. But here's the deal. If we're going to experience revival, we've got to get rid of those idols in our life. We've got to quit making excuses just because everybody else sits and worships the gods of this world doesn't mean we're supposed to do that. But then as we take this story further, we see three other things that Josiah led the people to do that brought about this revival. And I am convinced that each of these things are just as important for us to do today. Now, here's the first thing that we've got to do if we want to experience revival. God's house must become a priority in our life. Let me say it again. You're never going to experience revival until God's house becomes a priority in your life. Listen to what it says beginning in verse 8. In the 18th year of his reign, after he had purified the land in the temple, Josiah appointed Japhon, son of Azaliah, Messiah, the governor of Jerusalem, and Joah, son of Joahaz, the royal historian, to repair the temple of the Lord his God. They gave Hilkiah, the high priest, the money that had been collected by the Levites who served as gatekeepers at the temple of God. The gifts were brought by the people from Manasseh, Ephraim, and from all the remnant of Israel, as well as from all Judea, or Judah, Benjamin, and the people of Jerusalem. They restored what earlier kings of Judah had allowed to fall into ruin. Now, Josiah was now at the ripe old age of 26. He was an old man. 26 years of age, he had sought God and he had found God. He had removed all of the idols from the land. But then he looked at the temple and the temple of God was in disrepair. The temple was the place where God's glory was revealed. The temple was the place where the sacrifices were to be made. The temple was the place where the people were to meet God, the temple was a big deal. And it was in ruins. It was in disrepair. And Josiah got burdened about that. 
He said we can't let this continue. We have to repair the temple of God. Now listen, we don't have a temple today. This church building is not a temple. The Bible says that we are the temple of God. I'm the temple of God. You're the temple of God. If you are a child of God, if you have been saved, God's spirit lives in you like it did in the temple of the Old Testament, and you have become the temple of God. And some of us have taken that today, and we thought, well, I'm the temple of God. Therefore, I don't need to gather together in a place I mean, I can worship God as good on the lake, or I can worship God as good on the mountains as I can with a bunch of people in a building. Why do I need that? As a matter of fact, if I'm out on the lake, I feel God's presence more. And can I say to you, you may be able to worship God out on the lake. You may be able to worship God out in the mountains. I love the lake. I love the beach. I love the mountains. If you want to take me to any of them, I'll go with you. I like those places. But I want you to listen to what the New Testament says. The New Testament says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as some are doing. Sound like this could be written for us today. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as some are already doing. Knowing this, the day of his appearing is quickly approaching. And if Our Lord's appearing was approaching quickly back then. Let me tell you, it's approaching even quicker today. We're closer than we've ever been, and we need to gather together with the people of God because, hear me, listen, the church in the New Testament is made up of us, but you're not the church. We're the church. Did you hear me? The church is not an I. The church is an us. The church is a we. The church is always plural. It's the ecclesia, the ones who are called out. It's the gathered ones. The church gathers together to worship God and serve God. And let me tell you, friends, if we're going to ever experience revival in America today, we have to get to the point where we take church gathering and church scattering after we gather seriously again. The church has to be a priority in our life. Here's what I believe. Hear me. You will never experience revival personally in your life until you make gathering together with other believers a priority in your life. Mark it down. Put it on your note sheet. If you want to experience revival, it's not going to happen out there in the woods in a deer stand. You may think it is. It's not. The enemy may deceive you. Revival is going to happen when the people of God are worshiping around the throne of God and we have an encounter with the living God together and all of a sudden God begins to move in a powerful way. The house of God has to become a priority again. But there's a second thing. God's word must become our authority. Notice what it says in verse 14. While they were bringing out the money collected at the Lord's temple, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the Lord of the, of the law of the Lord that was written by Moses. Hilkiah, son of Shapham, the court secretary, said, I have found the book of the law in the Lord's temple. 
Then Hilkiah gave the scroll to Shaphan. Shaphan took the scroll to the king. Now, did you get that? They found the book of the law of the Lord. They found God's word. And did you hear where they found it? This is crazy. They found God's word in what? God's temple. God's word got lost in God's temple. I mean, isn't that ironic? I mean, that's crazy, isn't it? God's temple was in such disrepair, it was lying in such a state of ruin that God's word was in God's temple and nobody even knew it. And they hadn't had an encounter with God in a long time because God's word was hidden among the ruins of the temple of God. And I think, I think that maybe, just maybe, we have lost God's word in the temple of God today. You say, what are you talking about? Well, everybody in this room, save a few maybe, would say if I asked the question, do you believe the Bible is the word of God? Oh, you'd raise your hand, amen. You'd even go further. If I said, do you believe the Bible is the perfect word of God without error? You go, oh, I bet you better believe I do. Those darn liberals Trying to take away from the Word of God. I believe the Word of God is true from cover to cover, from Genesis to maps. I believe the Word of God is true. That's what we say. But is the Word of God the authority in our life? I mean, we got Bibles sitting on our coffee tables. We got Bibles sitting on our nightstands. We got Bibles on our phones. Man, I got 26 Bible translations on my phone here. I mean, we got Bibles all over the place, but is the Bible really the authority in our life? Is the Bible how we make decisions for what is right and wrong, good and bad? Does the Bible guide the financial decisions you make in your life? Does the Bible guide the relational decisions that you make in your life? Does the Bible guide the moral decisions you make in your life? I mean, some of you, I I don't know, some of you may be here this morning and you say you're a Christian and you're living together. I mean, if you're too young, hold your ears, you're having sex. But you're not even married. I mean, the Bible has a word for that. It's called fornication. It's sin. Sin. And, And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6 that fornicators will not enter the kingdom of God. That's serious stuff. This is a big stinking deal. We say the Bible is our authority, but what God understands, I've got needs. Is the Bible our source of authority? Or are we just playing games? Now now notice what it says here, and we've got to hurry. If God's word is going to be the authority in our life, God's word must be read. Verse 18, Shaphan also told the king, Hilkiah, the priest has given me a scroll. So Shaphan read it to the king. Can I tell you right now, if you say the word of God is the authority in your life, but you're not reading it, it's not the authority in your life. You say, but Rocky, I have a devotional every morning. I, I I read utmost for his highest. That's a great devotional. But you're not reading the Bible. You're reading a devotional thought on one verse. What you need to do is you need to read the Bible. You don't need to read what people say about the Bible. You need to read the Bible. Have you ever thought that the people who write those devotionals, and I write devotionals, do you ever think that those people aren't inerrant? They make mistakes. 
They don't know all. They don't see all. We shouldn't be reading a book about the Bible to see what the Bible says. We should be reading the Bible to see what the Bible says. So what that means is, if you're going to take it seriously, you're going to develop a plan in your life where you read the Bible each and every day. And I'm not saying you have to read the Bible through every year, though that's a good idea. I'm saying that you do have to have some kind of systematic plan where you're going through the Bible if it's the authority in your life. But notice second, you not only read the Bible, you allow the Bible to convict you. God's word convicts, verse 19. When the king heard what was written in the law, he tore his clothes in despair. Josiah was overcome with conviction. When we read the Word of God, we got two choices. We can humble our hearts toward the Word, or we can harden our hearts to the Word. Did you hear me? We have a choice. In Acts chapter 2, Peter preached a message straight from the Word of God, quoting Old Testament Scripture. The Bible says after Peter preached, the people were cut to the heart. You know what that means? Their hearts were convicted. Hebrews 4 verse 12 says that the word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword, cutting to the very center of our being. And they were cut to the heart. Everybody that heard Peter preach, they were convicted. But the Bible goes on to say that 3,000 of those gladly received the word. They read it, they heard it, they were convicted, they received it. But there were others there that day, thousands, who rejected it. You see, when the Word of God is read by you, it will do something to you. The Word of God is a powerful book. It's mysterious, supernatural. And there are times that the Word of God is going to bring great joy to your life as you read promises and you hold on to those promises. There are going to be other times that the Word of God convicts you and breaks your heart like it did with Josiah right here. The question is, when, when God's Word speaks, what are you going to do with it? Are you going to get up and walk away and reject what it says? Or are you going to humbly receive what it says? God's word needs to be read. God's word convicts when we do read. And then God's word needs to be obeyed. Listen to what it says in verse 29 and following. And then the king summoned all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. And the king went up to the temple of the Lord with all the people of Judah and Jerusalem. Along with the priests and Levites. All the people from the greatest to the least. Everybody met at this service. There the king read to them the entire book of the covenant that had been found in the Lord's temple. The king took his place of authority beside the pillar, renewed the covenant in the Lord's presence. He pledged to obey the Lord by keeping all his commands, laws, and decrees with all of his heart and soul. He promised to obey all the terms of the covenant that were written in the scroll. You see, it's not enough to read the book. It's not even enough to be convicted by the book. We've got to make a decision to obey the book. The book of James says this in chapter 1. It says, don't merely listen to the word, but do what it says. Don't just listen to it. 
Do what it says. In the Great Commission where we're commanded to go into the world and make disciples, you know what else it says? It says teach them to do what? To obey. Go into the world, make disciples, and teach them all these great fabulous truths and theories. No, teach them to obey. The Word of God is meaningless. It's useless unless we obey it. We need to get to the point in our life where the Word of God becomes the authority in our life, a treasure possession in our life again, where the house of God becomes a priority. But there's one final thing. If we want to experience revival, I believe that God's power must be remembered anew in our life. Chapter 35, verse 1 says this, Then Josiah announced that the Passover of the Lord would be celebrated in Jerusalem, and so the Passover lamb was slaughtered on the 14th day of the first month. Now, the blood of the Passover lamb was what saved the people from the wrath of God in Egypt when the angel of death came through. If a home did not have the blood of the Passover lamb on the door, then the firstborn in that home died. The only thing that spared the people from the wrath of the lamb or the wrath of God was the blood of the lamb. And God said that this Passover was such a big deal that it was to be celebrated every year. Every family was to celebrate it. The Passover took place in Exodus. We're commanded to celebrate it in Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. But then in Judges, or excuse me, Joshua chapter 5, we have the last mention of Passover until this passage. Did you hear that? Passover, this big deal, remembering God's salvation in the midst of God's wrath. A celebration that causes us to remember what God has done. The very last time that it is mentioned until we get to this passage is Joshua chapter 5. They haven't even taken the promised land yet. Now that doesn't mean that they didn't celebrate Passover from time to time. But it is strange, isn't it? That this celebration that was such a big deal is never mentioned throughout their history until you get to the very end of their history. You see, I think the problem was they forgot what God had done. And I'm here to tell you, you're never going to experience revival until you remember what God has done in your life. And here's why. Because revival, remember, is a work of God among God's people. Revival is something that the people of God experience. What that means is for me, revival is when I have a new and fresh encounter with my Lord. He's already my Lord. I know him. He's changed my life. He rescued me from sin. He, he delivered me from the grips of the bondage of Satan. And yet you and I both know that life, gosh, life is tough. Life takes us in so many different directions and it tosses us up and it turns us around and it sometimes causes us to fall flat on our face. And we get so caught up in life that we forget what it was like when we first fell in love with, with Jesus. 
I remember it. I really do remember it as if it were yesterday. When Jesus saved me. When he changed my life. I mean, it, he changed everything. I, 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 I didn't even want to hear bad words on the playground at school. I mean, I'm not talking about I didn't want to say bad words. I didn't want to hear bad words. I mean, it, it broke my heart. It, it troubled me when I heard bad words. Why? Because God had so changed my life. You've heard me say before that every night I would pray and I'd pray for people to be saved. And I prayed for Satan to be saved every night. I thought if anybody needs saving, it's him. Bad theology, I didn't have it all together then. But man, I was right on, I need to pray for people to be saved. Jesus has changed my life. I wanted to change everybody's life. My parents bought me a, a Bible called The Way. It was the living Bible back then. It was a paperback Bible. When I was 11 years old, I read the Bible through for the very first time in a year because God's Word was so important to me. As a little kid, He changed my life. And revival is when we remember what God has done in the past. And we long to fall in love with God like that again. We've got to remember God's power. I, I don't want to be a part of a generation that stands before God and God says you missed it. You had a chance. I was willing to move. And you weren't willing to do your part. I don't want that. And I think that if you've had an encounter with the living Lord, you don't want that either. So the question is, are you willing to do what it takes to experience revival? It's not going to be easy. There's going to be some tough choices. Things will have to change. But it will be so worth it. But it's up to us. Would you bow your head? With your head bowed, with your eyes closed, I want you to ponder three things. Is God's house a priority in my life? If not, what am I willing to do to make it right? Second, is God's word the authority in my life? Do I obey what it says? Am I reading it daily? And if not, what am I willing to do to make it the authority in my life? And then third, is God's power being remembered in my life? Can I go back to a time when I was flat out in love with Jesus? I so wanted to live for him and serve him in every way. And if so... 
Are you willing to go back to that first love? And if the answer is no, you don't have that experience, would you give your heart and life to him today? Would you humble yourself broken before him, confessing your sin, trusting Jesus to save you? Because he will. I want you to take a few moments to pray. Father God, we come to you this morning laying it all on the table. Lord, search us. Show us anything in our life that is keeping us from experiencing your revival power. Lord, I pray that your house being a part of your church will be a priority in our life. Lord God, I pray that your word become the authority in our life to guide and direct all we do, our true north. And Father, remind us of how you've worked in our life in the past. And I pray, Father, that we will return to our first love. And I pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.